Thank you, guys. Thank you for that song. Good reminder. We know that God loves the world, but the last person to believe that he loves me is me. And in, in that sense, we're all doubters. Well, uh, again, I'm George, and I want to talk to you over the next several weeks about our doubts. Some of you were here for Easter, and uh, a woman grabbed me uh, as I was going up the stairs, and she said, Pastor George. And she was kind of insistent. She said, I, I just I want to thank you for the service today. Um, I want you to know that I've been trying to make my way back to church. I used to go to church all the time. Uh, in fact, I was very involved in a church. But it's been years. It's been years since I've even been able to come into a church. And the reason for that is that I have questions. I had these questions that came up and I didn't know what to do with them. I was wrestling with them, couldn't resolve them. Thought I better talk to the pastor and went to the pastor. And the pastor said, oh, you shouldn't ask those questions. Um, you should just have faith. And uh, she said to me, but I, I didn't know how to just have faith. Um, I just knew how to have the questions. And it was very interesting to me because what was obvious to me was that she did have faith. That's why she was here on Easter Sunday. That's why uh, she had the questions because she had faith. And that's why I was losing blood in my right hand because she was squeezing my wrist so hard. <laughs> now, I, I, in this series, I have three goals. And I want you to know right up front what I'm trying to accomplish so you don't think I can accomplish more than I can. But th these are fairly humble goals. But the first is I want to blow up the dichotomy in our minds between faith and doubt. We all have both of them. The second thing I want to do is I want to help you better understand the context, the intellectual context, the cultural context, today's context, in which you and I both have faith and doubt. All of us do. But our culture has a way of particularizing those doubts uh, for us. More about that later. The third goal is that uh, you'd walk out after uh, four or five weeks of this having some tools to address your doubts and to pursue them in a way that's fruitful. Uh, our source for this is primarily the teaching of Jesus. And in particular, Jesus' parables. These are short little stories that's so powerful. And I'm, I'm drawn to the parables in this context uh, because they raise more questions than they answer. Uh, they're not tidy. Uh, and, and they teach us by raising questions. It's, this, it's the parables of Jesus that tend to invite us and unsettle us at the same time. So we'll be looking at some of the unusual parables of Jesus, I think. And then the other thing we're going to take as a source is a book called A Secular Age. Now, some of you are readers and you might want to read this book. Uh, so here's a picture of the cover of it. It's by Charles Taylor, who is at McGill University. He's a, a philosopher. And this is a landmark work. But I want to just warn you, it's not for everybody. This is 800 pages. It's philosophical. It's very hard reading. So don't put yourself under any burden to read this. But if you're interested, a Secular Age by Charles Taylor. Now, if you are still interested in reading, but that book's too much for you to tackle, somebody else uh, has written a book uh, review uh, or, um, yeah, it's kind of like a reduction. This is only 140 pages or something like that. It's written by James K.A. Smith, who's a popular prof at Calvin College. And uh, this is much more easy to read and still very fruitful. It's called How Not uh, to be Secular. James K.A. Smith. Um, so we're going to be looking at those books. The reason Taylor 
is so important is, first of all, personally, he's helped me with my doubts. Uh, but second of all, he helps us understand the culture in which we're trying to believe. Here's the framing question for Taylor's 800-page book. Right at the beginning, he says this. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable not to believe in God. In other words, imagine that you lived in, say, Paris in 1500. You're standing there in Paris at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And, 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 and as you stand there, you may or may not be a believer in God yourself, but your assumption is that everybody around you generally believes in the spirit world. Now, fast forward 500 years later, you're still in Paris. Now you're standing there in front of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And uh, what's changed? Well, the culture's changed. You're standing in the same place. But your assumption is, you may or may not be a believer, but your assumption is that most, if not all the people around you don't believe. Now, what has changed? Well, the culture has, has changed. And what Taylor is trying to do is roll back the rug, pull up the floorboards, and help you to see where you're standing. Because Taylor argues that it's very different to try to believe in the 20th century, the 21st century, than it was to believe in the 16th century in 1500. When you look beneath the, the feet, uh, your feet, and see where you stand, in either case, what you see is you're not standing on objective reality as you might think you are, but all of us, the believer and the unbeliever alike, are standing on a set of beliefs, implicit beliefs, beliefs that we may not even be aware we believe. And those implicit beliefs have changed in 500 years. And it used, those implicit beliefs used to reinforce spiritual teaching, but now they tend to undermine spiritual teaching. Now, God hasn't changed in 500 years. He's either there or he's not, and he's the same. But our way of thinking about God has, and the way of thinking about life has. So this is helpful to me. You may think, I don't really care, George, about philosophy at all. I'm wrestling with this week, and it's very concrete and not abstract. Oh, well, okay. But, but, but hang in here, because I think you might care if you understand that you could learn something that helps you with your doubt. If we're going to really explore our doubt, we need to understand it. And if we're going to be able to doubt our doubts, we're going to have to understand the beliefs upon which our doubts are based. So that's what we're going to do uh, today. Actually, Taylor looks at five different axes that have changed in 500 years. Uh, things like uh, truth, ethics, people, time, identity. There have been these shifts, and we'll look at each of those over the coming weeks in turn. Today, we're going to look at head doubts, the truth axis, how the way we think about what we know has shifted. And the question isn't so much what do you know, but it's how do you know, okay? Now come back. I want to invite you to read a passage with me. Let's get to Jesus. I know that's a little bit abstract, but Jesus tells a story about how we know, okay? Let's open up your Bibles. Uh, if you're new, grab the black book in front of you there. I'm going to invite you to read with me, so you'll need to open and turn to page 815. And if you're able, let's stand and read Mark chapter 4. Verses 26 through 29, so on 815. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Notice Jesus is inviting his followers to look beneath their feet, pull up the floorboards and notice the ground. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. 
He also said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. When the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I think this is an intriguing story. Uh, I've loved it since I first read it. It's the only place it is in the Bible. Just here. It's three sentences. It's very simple. Three-act play, if you want to think of it that way. Farmer sows seed, goes to bed, wakes up, and there's the harvest. Now, here's the question. What does it mean? What does it mean? I'm wondering how you respond to this. Here's how I respond. I think the farmer has something to teach us about doubt. I think he's teaching us that we can live lives that depend on what we doubt. We live lives, this is my point here, that that depend on what we doubt. Now, I'm going to have to argue that, I know. But notice this, verse 27. There's this little section right here, the climax of this. He's talking about the seed that's going to sprout and grow. And then right there, Jesus says, and how? He does not know. He does not know how. This is his belief that the seed will sprout and grow. That's why he sows the seed. That's his faith. And his life depends upon it. His family's life, the village's life, all depends upon his faith that if you put that little seed in the ground, it's going to produce food. That's his faith. But he doubts. If you ask him, how does that happen? He says to you, I have no idea. I have no idea. We say, well, your life depends on this. Explain it to me. How do you know it's going to happen again? He goes, I I don't know if it's going to happen. I can't explain it to you, but I have faith and I have doubt. Okay? You see that both of those things are together. Jesus has put the question right in the middle of the story. It's the how question. How do you know? And it's like it's sitting there in the center of the story like a scarecrow. It's the one thing that kind of hits you in the eye. I think what Jesus is saying is, friends, if you want to follow me, you'll need a place in your life for your faith and you will need a place in your life for your doubt. Your life depends upon it. Now, I want to look at this doubt in two ways, as Jesus does. You're going to see that there are two implicit uh, beliefs in this passage and there's doubt about both of those beliefs. So we're going to look at the two ways that doubt is productive and then we're going to look at five implications very quickly for our lives. So uh, the first implicit belief is that the ground automatically produces fruit. Uh, The the farmer teaches us to doubt our beliefs. Um, There's a word here, it's translated by itself in the passage. It's uh, there in verse 28. The earth produces of itself. Now, the Greek word for that is automatos. And it's, it's, it's the word from which we get our English word automatic. And it can be translated by itself like it is here or even by chance. There's an implicit claim here that you put a seed in the ground that's in the soil, by the way, it's a property of the soil. It just by itself automatically produces fruit. And so, you know, the common belief then would be that if you put a seed anywhere, it will always produce uh, fruit. What's interesting about that 
is Jesus has told another parable just before this one that raises a question about that, that calls it into doubt. Have you noticed that? The chapter begins with a parable about four soils. And what the farmer knows that maybe the general population doesn't know is that the, the, the ground doesn't automatically always produce fruit. There's rocky soil and there's shallow soil and there's soil with other plants. And, and you got to be careful where you... Th- now, how does he... So that's what the farmer knows. He, he, he knows something that the common population doesn't know. The common belief is it's just a property of the seed. He goes, no, it's a really property of the soil that some soils uh, are more productive than other soils. How does he know that? Well, he's experimented. He has raised questions, tried hypotheses, and seen results. And he's like, oh, okay. Rocky soil, not so good. Deep soil, really good. Uh, he's a scientist. And what I'm saying to you is that the farmer teaches us to doubt the beliefs that other people commonly hold in order to learn more. The farmer knows something that not everybody else knows. And you get a picture of him like a scientist here when he's almost just sort of soothed through the eyes of the farmer. We're watching the growth of this stock. First, you get the stock. And it's like this is a note in his field journal, right? First, you get the stock. He's very observant. And then you get the head. And then, and then, and then you get the, the fruit on the head. So it's first and this and this. He's describing a scientific uh, uh, biological, horticultural process that he's come to know through experimentation. And what I'm saying is, let's, let's be respectful of our doubt because our doubt oftentimes leads to learning. Uh, our doubts open us to knowledge. When we doubt our beliefs, we end up with better beliefs, okay? There's a lot going on in your life, in the Bible, that you don't understand, and it's important to raise questions about that because you're going to get a better understanding, right? Our doubt shouldn't scare us. It should excite us it, because learning is around the corner, because growth is around the corner. So let's doubt our beliefs because we're going to get better uh, beliefs. Now, let me back up and give you a little bit of context. I hope to do this each week when we talk about uh, this because Charles Taylor gives us a little bit of timeline about how our uh, experience of knowledge changes. If you go back, there are three stops on this. If you go back to the ancient world, way before 1500, you, you, you find yourself like in, in the Greek era in the West and there the world uh, uh, knowledge, what we know is in the immaterial world. The Greek philosophers were big on the, the world uh, that is immaterial, non-physical. That's the, that's the domain of the gods. It's the domain of the ideas or the ideals, uh, particularly Plato. And the goal is really to transcend the physical world and get into the immaterial world. And that's how you really know. And the way that you know so is in, in the ancient world is through reason in the West. And then we move along this timeline. We come to the second stop. It's the, the era of biblical uh, revelation and in this world, uh, it's not just the immaterial world that matters. Yes, there is the spiritual world, but also the Hebrew people uh, discovered that the material world, the physical world, actually matters. It's beloved. God loves it. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's troubling in many respects. But it's but but God loves it, and it's being redeemed. And so, the biblical area knowledge isn't so much discerned just by reason, but by also by revelation. God speaks to us about the importance of the natural world in the, in the biblical era. Third stop is over here, uh, the modern era. We've taken all that into advisement and taken it to its logical extreme. And now all that is real is the material world, the physical world. And if we want any knowledge at all, then science is our tool. 
So uh, re reason, revelation, and science. Taos is, you know, we might like to go back this, along this timeline to get more appreciation of God in the spiritual world, but we don't want to walk away from the gains of science, and we shouldn't. Uh, Jesus is here, I think, encouraging us to be inquisitive people. The benefits of science actually uh, uh, provide an, an awareness of the world upon which our lives depend, very literally. Science is rooted in Christianity. That, that's one of the implications of Taylor's study. The great 20th century physicist C.F. von Weizsäcker said, in this sense, I call modern science a legacy of Christianity. See, for some reason, we tend to think that faith and science are opposites or antithetical to one another. Actually, science is the daughter or the child of faith. Alvin Plantinga writes, modern Western empirical science originated and flourished in the bosom of Christian theism and originated nowhere else. Doubting our beliefs opens knowledge to us. And science is just one example of learning that depends on doubt. Galileo, Descartes, Boyle, Newton, Darwin, Pasteur, Maxwell, Edison, Freud, Einstein, all of them doubters, all of them willing to question the orthodoxy of their day in order to learn and to grow. In fact, many of them were deeply religious people. According to a, uh, an article published in the journal Nature, some 40% of American scientists believe in a personal God who answers prayer. Isn't that interesting? We tend to think scientists are, are atheists, all of them. Some of them are. But 40% of them believe in a personal God who answers prayer. And the article goes on to say that percentage has been about the same since 1916. I found that going from liberal arts institutions as a, as a chaplain, a campus ministry from Brown University and Harvard University over to MIT. And we said, oh, man, that must be really hard at MIT. I said, no, it's easier. So a lot more of the scientists believe in God than the liberal arts folks, the English majors like me, where you get to make up your own reality. <laughs> what the scientist knows is that there is a there there. Right? So it, it provokes investigation, curiosity. We can live lives that depend on what we doubt because when we doubt, we get better beliefs. And our life depends on better beliefs. Okay, the farmer teaches us a second thing, and that is to doubt our unbelief as well. There's a second implicit claim in the passage, and it's a little bit hard to see it, but you, it, it's implicit, it's there. It's, and it's the claim that the fruit will never come. It's the claim that the fruit just takes too god dong long time to come out, right? Uh, the reason I say that is, is most scholars tell us Jesus tells this story to his disciples because they're wondering, when are all these promises that you're making actually going to show anything in the world? Uh, th th this messianic claim of Jesus just seems to be taking too long and everything we see about Jesus seems to make it nonsense. I mean, this claim that he's the son of God. This teaching that forgiveness of sins is offered to all. This lifestyle of Jesus that he breaks bread with immoral people. This miraculous power that he casts out demons and he, and he heals people. And then finally, the ultimate offense to everything they understand about Jesus. The Messiah is executed by his enemies and dies a cursed death. There's almost nothing that they understand about Jesus. He makes no sense whatsoever. And Jesus is telling the story. He said, just you wait. Just you wait. Easter Sunday is coming. 
the end of the age is coming. By the way, that's what the sickle is about. This is a reference to Joel 3.13. The sickle represents the harvest when God comes to make the world the way it's supposed to be. This is the era when the lion lays down with the lamb and every man sits under his vine and fig tree. Jesus says, I know you can't see it. I know you can't get your head around it. It doesn't make any sense to you today, but it's coming. And the farmer teaches us that. Your life is filled with doubt. Doubts about me, Jesus says. Doubts about my messianic uh, work. Doubts about the kingdom of God. But just you wait. Doubt your unbelief. Prepare to be surprised. So what I'm saying is that doubting our unbelief opens us to fullness. It opens us to, to knowledge, but it also opens us to fullness. And this word fullness is a word that uh, Taylor uses. I, I'll probably use it again in this series. The word fullness for Taylor means that there's more than just what we can learn through science. That there's more to life than just physical processes. And, and he says all of us, the, the believer and the so-called not believer alike, all yearn for something more and we are haunted by a sense that there must be something more. There must be a fullness to life over and against the kind of reductions that we fall into in the 21st century. After all, is science the only way to know? Can life really be reduced to the material world? This is something, by the way, that even atheists argue about. Let me expose you to a little bit of a debate in the atheist world. Uh, Sir Francis Crick, you know him, he got a Nobel Prize. He writes, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Now, I have a hard time believing that. I have doubts about that. But, but, but that's what he's saying. Everything, your ambitions, your joys, personal identity, it all boils down to chemistry. It's just a bunch of chemistry that's happening in this room right now and nothing more. Now, that's one perspective that one atheist is arguing for. But another atheist named Julian Barnes writes this. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Barnes is a good example of how all of us are in some sense both believers and unbelievers. And what Barnes is doing here is he's doubting his doubts. He writes this, if I call myself an atheist at 20 and an agnostic at 50 and 60, it isn't because I've acquired more knowledge in the meantime, just more awareness of ignorance. I love that. The more you learn, the less you know. That's what he's saying. How can we be sure, he writes, that we know enough to know that there is no God? As 21st century neo-Darwinian materialists convinced that the meaning and mechanism of life have only been fully clear since the year 1859, this Origin of Species has published Darwin's work, we hold ourselves categorically wiser than those credulous knee-benders who a speck of time away believed in divine purpose, an ordered world, resurrection, and a last judgment. He says, but although we are more informed, we are no more evolved and certainly no more intelligent than them. What convinces us our knowledge or our unbelief is so final. Isn't that, that's interesting. He's doubting his doubt. Then he teases his overshore colleagues with a dilemma. He's speaking to atheists here and he says, would you rather there was nothing after death and you were proved right, O atheist, or that there was a wonderful surprise and your professional reputation was destroyed? Which would you rather have, right? That's a challenge to those of you academics that are out there. Doubting our unbelief opens us up to fullness that we cannot explain, that we do not understand. 
It's there, and at some point we have to say, we've come to the limits of our knowledge, but there's still more beyond the limit. And if you ask me how, I'm going to tell you, I do not know how, just like the farmer. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. It's actually good. The Bible teaches us this. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. Listen to the ancient sage. He says, when I apply my mind to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how one's eyes see sleep, neither day nor night, then I saw all the work of God that no one can find out what is happening under the sun. However much they toil in seeking, they will not find it out. Even though those who are wise claim to know, they cannot find out. There's a level of mystery and inscrutability to life that eludes us. The Bible says expect that. Expect to have more questions than answers. Expect to have to doubt in order to know. We wouldn't want to understand God, would we? My knowledge, the set of my knowledge is a small subset of the set of God's knowledge. God knows all things. And I just know a little part of what God knows. For me to say definitively that there is no God is to, is to say my set of knowledge would have to be coextensive with God's set of knowledge. That I would have to know that he doesn't exist somewhere in the disunion between my set of knowledge and his set of knowledge. For me to look at what's happened in my life and say this must mean there is no God because of all this pain. To look at the world and say there's too much evil. To say I know that there is therefore no God is to say that I must know everything that God knows. And you don't want that and I don't want that because then we would be worshiping a God who knows just exactly and no more than what we know. And that, that would be a very small God indeed. He would not be worthy of our worship or we would be saying in essence that we are the God that we worship because we know the same that God knows. We can't make sense of it all. So let's doubt our unbeliefs and be open. Be open to, to fullness as Taylor describes it. What I'm saying is that we can live lives that depend on what we doubt for knowledge, to learn, and for fullness, to really live. W. Austin once said, he that never doubted scarce ever well believed. Let me close with five implications. The first is this, be gentle with yourself. Be gentle with yourself. God knows that there's a lot you don't understand about him, about your life, about the Bible. That's okay. And, and even in our not knowing, the growth of the kingdom is happening in our lives and in our world. It's okay. So be gentle. Secondly, respect your doubt. Respect it. It will take you to a good place. Um, the most famous of all doubters, of course, is Thomas. And this is probably why sometimes pastors feel the need to say to people, you shouldn't doubt. Because Jesus actually does appear to say that to Thomas. He says, do not be doubting. But the, the grammar of that suggests he's not saying don't ever doubt. What he seems to be saying is uh, don't just be doubting. Don't just doubt. Now, because Thomas does doubt and raise questions, he learns something about Jesus, doesn't he? He says, oh, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger in the holes of his hand and touch his side. And Jesus honors his doubt. Jesus says, come on, let's go ahead, do the experiment. Do the empirical thing, Thomas, that you feel you have to do. God honors that in, in, in Thomas's life through Jesus' resurrection body. But that's not all. In fact, when, when Thomas puts his finger in Jesus' body, then he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God, which, which is an act of worship. 
which is an act of, of, of adoration before immeasurable mystery. That's what's going on. Jesus does not give him a fully satisfactory explanation of the resurrection. He's, no lo- he's not said, this is how it works. What, he's, just, he's just made it clear who he is, my Lord and my God. And, and he gets that insight because he raises good questions. The 7th century Pope Gregory the Great said, the disbelief of Thomas has done more for our faith than the faith of the other disciples. Think of that. The disbelief of Thomas has given us a witness to the physical body of Jesus Christ. A third, recognize belief in others. I know why we do this, but I don't think it's helpful when we speak of ourselves or of other people as unbelievers. If Taylor is right, all of us are believers and all of us are unbelievers. And wouldn't it be more helpful to think of your neighbors or your children or your parents as, um, as believers, as people who are on that journey, who are trying to make more of their belief because they're drawn to, f- to fullness that they don't understand and maybe can't even describe yet. Four, sleep better. Sleep better. And I've helped some of you with that today in this service. <clears throat> it's my gift to you. But seriously, someone has said the opposite of faith is not doubt, but control. Why do you think you have to understand everything? Why do you think you have to control to be in the know all the time? That's what disrupts our sleep. That's what's causing our epidemic of anxiety. David Zoll writes, part of our collective exhaustion has to do with our never-ending attempts to establish our own watertight truth. To summon certainty out of life's vicissitudes, an impossible task if ever there was one. It's this farmer's confidence that even though he doesn't know how it's going to work, it will work, that allows him to sleep so soundly at night. Finally, keep dreaming. The kingdom is a surprise. And your pain, the pain of today, our pain, the pain of today will yield tomorrow's fruit. That's one of the unexplained mysteries with which the farmer lives. And it's our truth as well. that Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. Let me close with a quote from Helmut Tielicke, who writes, uh, One day, perhaps, when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, If I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended. If I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us. If I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease. If I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes. That in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, his harvest was ripening. And that everything was pressing on toward his last kingly day. Oh, if I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident. Yes, then I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed. If ever I had dreamed. Let's pray. God, if there's any fault to be found in us today, may it, may it be this, that we dared to dream too much. Help us to live with the beauty of what we cannot explain. Thank you for the gifts of scientific inquiry. It has yielded great fruit. Bless those among us who are working at its leading edge. But for all of us, when we meet the limits of what we know, we pray that we would have the humility and joy to just watch you do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our response song would be, Your Love.